0: Hey guys, this is Dr. McFarland, and welcome to the podcast. This week we have Jim McLarty and I wanted him on because he has a vast knowledge of music and has a great history of playing drums in his own band and just wanted to catch up and see what kind of things he's doing nowadays and kind of glean
1: from the edges, if you will. So, hey Jim, how you doing? I realized by that intro that what you've really just said is, I'm a really old guy. <laughs> well, yeah. I didn't want to say it, but... But it's true. Yeah, but you're a little true. older than me. Yeah. <laughs> I go back to analog. Yeah. Right. So.
0: Well, that's great. Well, that's why I wanted to have you on, because you do have such a vast experience with all kinds of music and over the years. So let's just kind of go back and say, like, all right, where did you start with this whole music thing?
1: I started in fourth grade. That's when I began taking drum lessons officially, but they were more than just drum lessons. They were percussion lessons, and so I was also learning xylophone and timpani and all that kind of stuff. Uh, By the age of 13, I was playing with the Houston all City Symphony as a percussionist. Traveled to England, Scotland, and Wales, touring with that symphony. And then uh, from there, branched out into jazz and went to California to seek my rock and roll dreams and was relatively successful with that. Got to make some albums, got to do some big tours and uh, and then, you know, consequently got old. So there you are.
0: Yeah. And what was it about drums that drew you to it other than like French horn or guitar or any other instrument?
1: I was always fascinated by piano. Originally, when I was in school, I thought I wanted to play trumpet. I was told that I had bad teeth, and so I didn't have the amateur in order to blow a trumpet. And I wanted to play piano, um, but I had this innate sense of rhythm. And so the band director at the school, I guess needing drummers...
0: That's usually I, how it works out, yeah, right? Yeah, it
1: guided me toward the drums. <laughs> hey, you.
0: You look like you have rhythm. You'll work. <laughs>
1: yeah. And so, no, as soon as I got sticks in my hand and I learned that I got to hit things with sticks, I was like, yeah, let's do this. And, yeah, I was always fascinated with drums just because there was so many variations. To me, there were so many tonal choices. There were so many even emotional choices that you could make with drums that you uh, not only guided the band, that you were not only the giant metronome, but you could accentuate all the things that you wanted people to really listen to. When I was playing with 707, my band back in the 80s, my right foot was playing with Phil, the bass player, but my left hand was always paying attention to Kevin, the guitar player. Hmm. And overall, my sense of rhythm was coming from Todd, the keyboardist. Whatever patterns he was playing, I was mimicking. I was accenting whatever Kevin was playing on the guitar, and my foot never left Phil. Wow. And so I just grew to really enjoy and appreciate the fact that the drummer was central to what a band would and could do.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah, it's it's amazing how. Like a really good drummer can kind of go unnoticed, but a bad drummer, like everyone notices immediately, is like, oh, something is off.
1: <laughs> something doesn't sound right. I'll tell you, one of the best experiences I had when I was playing with the symphony, there was a percussion part that was written by Václav Nelibó, a name that just doesn't get said that often these days. It just
0: rolls off the tongue, right? Yeah, it
1: does. <laughs> and uh, and it, was a, it was just a great percussion piece. And I was really, I had really practiced up. I was really excited about my part that was coming up. And all of the sequences and and accents that I was playing were uh, right with the French horns and with the trumpets. And I was really enthusiastic about it. And so suddenly that moment came up in the music. And man, I just fired away at the snare drum. And the conductor stopped just stopped the whole orchestra and said to me, Jim, and I knew I was in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, what's so important about your part? And I realized that by playing it the way I was playing it, just wanting to show off that I could do this complicated bit of percussion, that I wasn't blending with the orchestra. I wasn't complementing the trumpets and the French horns. Mm -hmm. I was overwhelming them. And uh, that was a really important lesson. I was, I think, 12 at the time, 13. Um, And it it taught me the importance of finding your place within the music and only playing what complements the song, what's right for the piece that you're playing, and not to overplay just because you can, and not to draw attention to yourself when it's not about you. If it's your moment for a fill, then fair enough. (laughs) Draw some attention. But otherwise, you're there to complement what everybody else is playing and to be part of the organic whole. And that is a lesson that I really don't think enough musicians pay attention to. Right. Well, if you look
0: at a score... Usually there's like p, pf, ff. Yeah. you know, how loud yeah. you need that part to be played. And you probably just looked at the, how cool the part was and didn't look yeah. at the little fine details. Like, oh, I should matter. have played that a little bit softer.
1: <laughs> yeah, it didn't matter piano. It didn't matter mezzo forte. It, all I knew was gym level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> So that was an important lesson, and I'm glad that I learned it early on. Well, well, I
0: bring that up because in a composition class at MTSU, uh, we had to write a whole score of, like, whatever the melody was. You know, we had to write a part for the French horns and the percussion, whatever. So anyway, I guess I forgot to edit the score because when it came time for the snare drum to come in, he played, like, super loud. And As the, drummers do. And the teacher was like, you didn't mean for him to play that loud, did you? He was like, no, I did not. It's was like, yeah. well, that's what it said in the music, so <laughs> that's what he did. Right. You know, he was just paying attention to what the music told him to do. Right. Uh, you you kind of have to pay attention to that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> well, and those kind of lessons uh, complemented the rock and roll career that I had later on. When I was in Detroit, I played with big bands. Mm -hmm. because I could read well. Um, And I played in several jazz bands, various different size groups. Some of them were just upright bass, piano vibes and drums. And uh, a couple of times I played with a Dixieland band. Oh, that's cool. And the transition, which I didn't understand at the time, I had to be told in very uh, certain terms how I was supposed to play. Because in a jazz band... As everybody is improvising, the drummer has a certain amount of freedom to make up his parts as he goes. And then I got to the Dixieland band, and all they wanted was straight time. Just boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. Don't change that. There's no yeah. room for fills. You don't need to bring your tom-toms. <laughs> you know, there's just no room for that. And so I had to learn the importance of play the gig whatever the job is, play the job. And if there's room for improvisation, then great. I I remember in Detroit playing in the jazz clubs, um, and I could drop some names, but really who would pick up these names I'd be dropping? But I was playing with some of the best players in Detroit at the time, and I was in high school, college. And... As I would play with these, these various bands and understand their approach to music, the one unifying factor across the board was always, can you cut the gig? Can you play the job? So, okay, fast forward now. I'm at A&M Studios in Los Angeles. It was one of the first sessions that I did when I got to L.A., and it was because I had become friendly with Billy Preston and with his drummer, Manuel Kello. Mm-hmm. And so Manuel gave me my first in-studio demo gig. And so I said to the, the engineer, you know, I was thanking him for having me in. And, you know, this was after we were done playing. And he said well, you're a really nice guy and we appreciate you being here. And then he said something so important. He said, you know, I could pick up the phone right now and I could call a hundred people who could cut the gig. But the question is, do I want to spend an hour with them? (laughs) And so I kept learning these lessons over the process of playing with different people where it wasn't... Does that mean he didn't want to spend... The time with you or no, he, what? He, he was fortunately he was saying you're a good guy. Okay, you're, you're a, nice a good guy. hang and yeah, you're a good yeah, hang. Okay. And so so it was more than than just cut the gig, know what to play, don't overplay, find your part in the song, fit well, but then also be a good guy. Mm-hmm. Don't show up drugged or drunk or you know. Right. Know when to shut up know when to let people do their job don't hover over the... I I was fascinated with the soundboard I mean that was my introduction to SSL boards you know I was thrilled I wanted to ask questions I wanted to know more mm. but I was also just getting in the way and so, do you know which
0: board it was, the SSL? I do not. There's like a G version and an E version.
1: A&;M Studios didn't even matter. Back then. Yeah. Yeah, so I do not know. I wish I knew. I wish I had taken pictures. I've never
0: seen one in real life. So like, I know there's plugins based off of. Right. Them, but
1: <laughs> That's the hysterical part about plugins these days. As we made the transition from analog to digital, Digital became almost too clean mm. and too harsh for our ears because our ears are analog. And so our ears enjoyed analog recording. And as a consequence, there's all these digital plugins now that are trying to emulate analog sound, which I just find hysterical because yeah. I grew up an analog baby. I grew up dragging rust across magnets. And to me, that's a pleasant sound. Right. Uh, the first time that I heard a digital analog tape, a DAT tape, was uh, at the SEMPTI show in Los Angeles. And the recording was just of a single violin. And you'd put the headphones on and listen to it. And there was no hiss. And we were fascinated because hiss <laughs> was part of the analog... Product. Yeah. And so we were just. Oh, yeah. So we were fascinated by it. But then little by little, the limitations of digital recording became more and more obvious. And so now you have people trying to make digital sound more analog. Mm -hmm. So we've come full circle to going 196K and 24 bit. Absolutely. To try to emulate what we used to be able to do with tape.
0: Yeah. I can't remember his name, but some huge producer, I think he always records like 196 because he swears it's as close without the tape, it's obviously but like as close to like the pure analog sound is what you can get. But then it takes up like half your hard drive. So I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, you just and, keep buying more hard drives, I guess, yeah. or something. And a lot of studios still to this day have 16 or 24 track two inch mm-hmm. machines especially for recording drums and recording guitars, Mm -hmm. because you can't change the bias in a digital recording. Right. But you can change the bias on tape and then overdrive the tape. You can saturate the tape. And that's that wonderful drum and guitar sound that you hear on all those 70s and 80s records that sound so good. It's from... Oversaturating tape. Now there's all these tape emulation digital plugins, trying to create that same sound. Yeah. And uh, the good studios, some of the big studios here in Nashville, still have tape just to do that. And then once you've recorded the drums and the guitars onto tape, they transfer it into Pro Tools mm-hmm. and try to do it at 196 and you know try to emulate again what they found in tape.
0: Well, as far as interfaces, you use a Universal Audio interface. I so do. So, have you tried the tape emulation stuff? And... I I own several. And what's your pre- professional opinion on those? Speaking from a from someone who's been in the analog world, and now you're using emulation, is like, does it do it for you for your ears, or is just like,
1: yeah? It depends uh, what direction you approach it from. If you're approaching it from the direction of listening to a two-inch tape that's properly biased, mm-hmm. then it's, it's not a good comparison. I, I don't care for the digital emulations. But if you're listening to just a digital recording and the harshness that comes with it, and then you slap a, a tape emulation onto your mix... That is more pleasant, and it's also more cohesive. It helps to kind of pull your mix together. So if you're starting from the standpoint of digital, the emulation is good. It's a, it's a good plus. Yes, right. yes, do it, is my advice. If you're starting from a two-inch and then going to an emulation, then no, there's no comparison. Yeah,
0: that, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So tell me about your band
0: in the 80s. Did you start in the 70s in the, or in the 80s, or what era was
1: that? We got signed to Casablanca Records in late 1979. Our first album was released in 1980. Gotcha. And the band was called 707. Our first single was called I Could Be Good For You. And uh, as recently as a couple of years ago, there was an Adam Sandler movie that used that song again. So it's sort of the song that will not die. Right. It still gets played a lot on the radio on uh, FM stations across the country, especially all of these stations that are doing, you know, throwback music, seventies, eighties music,
0: especially like Sirius Radio and right. stuff like that. I know my dad listened to Sirius Radio a lot. Yeah. So,
1: and the difference between actual radio and internet radio is that you still get ass cap checks from real radio. Mm -hmm. But in the digital world, on the internet, uh, my music, we did four albums, and then since then, several other albums have been released of live shows we did and stuff. And those things are all over the internet, and I get paid virtually nothing for that.
0: Right. It's okay. You would think with Sirius Radio that they still have, like, some kind of measuring, you know, measurement of, like... They do.
1: They have metrics, but... But then again, they can't... Just
0: a penny, like half of a, you know, so just a small portion of a penny that doesn't really add up to anything. Right. So what you're saying?
1: Well, you're going to get into one of my uh, favorite areas to rant about, the difference between actual physical records, which is what I grew up on, and when you actually have a product, a piece of vinyl with a cardboard cover on it, and you've sold that to somebody, then there's an actual profit margin. Mm -hmm. And then the record company and the artist, to a lesser degree, share in that profit margin. And growing up, buying records, and I know you have a couple here on your shelf, so you might very well know the thrill of buying an album. And when you bought the album, you took ownership of it. And what I mean by that is, When we signed with Casablanca, our attorney said to us, uh, he said, before, when you were in clubs trying to get signed, your competition was every other band in Los Angeles that's trying to get signed. That was your competition. But now that you're signed to a record label, when your record comes out, your competition is everybody who ever made a record. Because when that kid walks into a record store, and some of your younger listeners won't even remember what a record store was, right? Yeah. But when they walk into Tower Records, and they've got 10 bucks in their hand, and they're going to buy an album, are they going to buy the Beatles? You know? Are they going to buy 707? Are they going to buy Stravinsky? Are they everybody who has ever made a record is now your competition for that kid's 10 bucks. Yeah. And so that kid, when he spends that money and picks up that particular album, he owns that. And that ownership kind of becomes part of him. I know when I used to buy an Emerson Lake and Palmer album or a Jethro Tull album or Those were the kind of bands that I loved. And I would go home and I would put my headphones on and I would listen to that record from beginning to end and I'd listen three or four times endlessly. I'd read the lyrics. I read all the liner notes. I knew what studio they were in. I knew who engineered it. I knew everything about that record and it became part of my mindset, part of my culture. Okay, well, that experience doesn't exist anymore. Right. Because if you're a kid today, you don't take ownership of anything, and yet you have access to everything. And when you have random access to everything, you can listen to a piece of it, a part of it, go listen to something else. So every piece of music becomes disposable. Right. So essentially, all music, no matter who it is, no matter how well-recorded it is, becomes another version of elevator music. It's just something that you listen to for those couple minutes you're on the elevator, and then you go on to something else. It's the same way that MTV, in my opinion, in so many ways destroyed music because instead of listening to music, kids were told to watch their music. Right. And music is not a watching activity. It's a listening activity. And so then people started buying records based on what the video looked like. And that that to me was the sort of the end of that era of active listening to music. If people still bought their music based on the quality of the music and they actually listened to it, Would there be a Justin Bieber today? Probably not. Would every female artist today? I I think there's a fair homogenization of the way records are made these these days and the way that people sound. Um, Every female singer, their mic settings all sound the same these days. Yeah. It's all high-end. They don't have a pleasing mid-range to it because they need to make it cut through all the electronic tracks. And uh, and that's a result of watching your music and the digitization of music and the MP3-ing of music. <laughs> and as a consequence, what you've got now is... Instead of buying a record, taking it home, putting on your headphones, listening to the analog recording of your favorite artist, what you've got is people listening to music through computer speakers, which, let's be honest, are the worst speakers in the world. Oh, yeah. They're listening to highly compressed MP3s on computer speakers or through earbuds that they paid $5 for on their way out of... You know, CDs or, or Walgreens. Yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> so it's the worst possible delivery system for music, and the reason people aren't and the reason people aren't really paying attention to how bad the delivery system is, is because they're watching it. They're right. entertained by it in different sensory ways. If they were only listening to it, I don't think they would settle for how badly it's delivered now.
0: Well, I think it's funny because. You know, I grew up watching MTV and VH1, you know, through the 90s. Well, sure you did. Stuff.
1: How old are you? Four, I just turned 40.
0: Thank you very you much. You just turned 40. Yeah. Well,
1: I'll beat you because I just turned 65. And you look great. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I qualify for Medicare. What can I tell you?
0: Yes, you can talk with my wife about that. Yeah. Um, but it's funny growing up, you know, watching VH1 and they have like the, uh, the A to Z countdowns and all that stuff. And then at some point they realized maybe the industry was changing or, you know, a lot of different factors, but maybe they just realized that people don't really come to watch the music anymore. So that's why all the TV yeah. shows. Yeah. They just started putting out more of that stuff instead of actually playing music videos. Yeah,
1: music television is not about music anymore.
0: Yeah. So it's like it just blows my mind that it started with something Yeah, it was visual. Because you go to see concerts. I mean, you see yeah. people on the stage and that's a visual thing. I mean, I don't think Led Zeppelin would be as popular if they didn't look the way they did, you know, Robert Plant and whatever else. But yeah, there's there's it's definitely multifaceted. And the aspects of, you got the sound aspect of music, but then you got the visual aspect of like, well, she looks really pretty or he looks really handsome or whatever. I mean, you can see my Beatles poster here on the wall. It's like, yeah, they were, they got the mop top thing going on, but then later on in their career, they grew their hair out and kind of morphed into this different persona, you know, with Strawberry Fields and different Mm -hmm. albums and And get more experimental, so I think there is a visual aspect to it. But I I know what you're talking about. It's like, why buy an album? We can just pay ten bucks a month for for Spotify or Apple Music and get everything ever created. You're basically just renting music at that point,
1: right? And you don't have ownership of anything. And if you don't have ownership of it, it's easy to skip. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in the middle of something, you may just pop out of it and go into something else. When was the last time that through Spotify or any of the music services, iTunes or anything else, how often do people sit down and listen to an album front to back? I don't know. I mean, it's instead now the single, the quick single, the quick video is the thing. In fact, it's getting, in my estimation, it's becoming more visual. It's just not doing it on MTV. Mm -hmm. But our whole lives these days revolve around computers and quick video on computers. And that's the way music's being delivered. And so if it's really visually stimulating, it doesn't matter if it sounds good. Right. And I grew up analyzing sound, wanting things to sound good. So it's a pretty remarkable thing that to this very day you'll have artists that will go in and spend the money to get the best control boards and the yeah, best thousands best speakers and yeah. the best yeah it just it runs into tremendous amount of money and so let's say they go into a studio in Nashville or in Los Angeles or in New York they pay the money to go to the record plant And they go in and they record their album. And it just sounds great because they're listening to it on all the best equipment. Mm -hmm. And then everybody who hears it from that point forward hears it on MP3 through computer speakers, just the worst possible delivery system. Right. And I grew up, my bedroom. Was a quad system. Remember quad records? Oh, yes. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I not only had a Tascam four channel 10 inch reel to reel in my bedroom with sound on sound so that I could do early, you know, recording by myself and do each track by myself, but there were actually quad headphones back in those days and quad amplifiers, and even quad records. And boy, I had all of that in my bedroom. used to drive my parents crazy because I would crank that stuff up and just sit in the middle of it and just be enveloped by it and listen to it because I invested money in being able to hear what was recorded and how it was recorded. Mm -hmm. And I would always listen to everything perfectly flat. I'd EQ everything flat so that I was listening to the EQ and the mix that the engineer wanted me to hear. Right. And uh, anyway, my point is, and I sound like an old codger now because those days are gone. Uh, (laughs) And I don't seem to be coming back. Those days are... Yeah, you just got to get with the times, Jim. That's me. I just got to (laughs) get with the times or I can just remain stuck in the mud, which is...
0: So it's my goal now, because I listen to pretty much all talk radio i mean i don't listen like i don't really listen to full albums anymore. <laughs> i can't tell you the last time i bought a cd now i do have vinyl down here because i do have a, a record player but i think for now i'm going to try and make it a goal of, like at least once a week because i waste i mean i waste so much time just like peeling around with stuff and playing guitar and whatever else It's like why not just sit and relax on my couch which is very comfortable. And just throw on a record and just listen to it. Or even just open up Spotify and just pick an album and just listen to it from top to bottom. Just let my mind unwind and just enjoy the music for once and not just... Because, you know, I mix. We both mix. We both engineer. We both record. It's very easy to get very technical and analytical about music. Because like oh, I don't like the way that sounds. Or I got to EQ the... The, the honkiness out of this banjo or you know whatever it mm-hmm. is.
1: But banjo, you're doing a lot of banjo now, are you? Well I have a banjo, thank oh, okay. you. And All right. <laughs> just checking.
0: <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like it's very easy to get analytical about things and over evaluate things and just stop and breathe and just yeah. enjoy the enjoy music. Enjoy music.
1: Yeah, just enjoy it. Absolutely. So that's the only reason I'm still doing it. It's the only reason I still have a studio at my house. Yeah. It's because I just enjoy it. I don't have an audience for what I'm doing anymore, and I don't sell what I'm doing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I do it for the sheer joy and love of it. As you know, because I've had you over a couple times to play guitar on a couple things. Yeah. And it's not... And it always c- sounds great. And it's just the sheer joy of music. Oh, yeah. But you've got a couple of pieces of vinyl down here, but you said you buy CDs... So that pretty much well, if
0: places in you
1: the... in a generation. I know oh, which yeah. generation of buyers you are. Then you never really knew the joy, and people my age bracket know the joy of buying a vinyl album and going home and reading not only the lyrics and the liner notes and everything, but album cover art yeah. is just a, it's a lost art. It doesn't exist anymore. Here's I do have
0: some recent I, I do buy vinyl. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this was a uh, this is a band called Zao. And if you're listening to the podcast, obviously you are, you're not gonna see this, but obviously it has, you know, the liner credits and right. lyrics all the and lyrics
1: on the inside all and that it stuff. opens and, like a
0: book and it's And I think I think that's what's great about this day and age. Is yeah, you do have the mp3, you do have the Spotify, but vinyl has been has come roaring back in sales over the last five and do you years. Know why because analog sounds better? Well, that <laughs> too, why. but you actually have something physical you can put in your hands,
1: absolutely. And you, one of the real you, do, crimes, you take the
0: ownership of buying
2: it,
1: right? One know. of the real crimes of CDs was the reduction of album cover art. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there ever anything more iconic than the first King Crimson cover? You know, you can visualize it immediately. Once you've seen it, it kind of sticks with you. Mm -hmm. And album cover art, you know, just doesn't exist when you're dealing with something like Spotify. And in fact, I've noticed right now I'm subscribing to uh, the Apple Music Service. I guess they don't call it iTunes anymore. Yeah. And they put the album cover art, the original art, up in the corner, a little tiny. Uh, you can't increase it. You can't look at it. You can't enjoy the the Open time and effort and... that went into it. Yeah. Right. I wish there were. I wish there was a way that we could read all the original stuff that used to be on those album covers.
0: Uh, when my band Feedback Revival toured Europe back in 2014. Uh, one of the venues in, I think in Holland, um, played a great show. I think I broke a string in that show and had to replace it on stage was, was not fun, but, um, we sold some CDs and stuff, but everyone was like, Hey, where's the vinyl? That's all they wanted. They wanted the vinyl. <laughs> it was like, well, vinyl is too expensive and we don't have any. So we didn't sell as many CDs on that show cause they wanted vinyl. So it was like,
1: yeah.
0: you know, which is, I think, is great. You know, just being reconnected to the music in that way, and seeing the big album cover, and yeah, uh, experiencing the music in a totally different way versus just listening to music while you're jogging or. Right. And whatever. kids
1: today don't know that they're missing that mm-hmm. because they've never experienced it. I grew up experiencing it, so I miss it. Right, but. My niece and my brother were at my house not too long ago. I have an old 1890s Vitrola in oh, my cool. dining room. Yeah, with a big horn and all that. Right, and it plays the 78s, and, and I have a collection of old 78s. And so my niece came outside to the backyard where I was, and I said, where's your dad? What's he doing? And she said, he's inside listening to CDs. And I thought, no, that's, there's no way that's what he's doing. He didn't come over to my house to listen to my CD collection. So I went in the house, and he was actually listening to some of the records on the old vitrotla. But my niece didn't know the word records she had no reference point for records. Mm-hmm. So the only thing she knew to call them was CDs. Okay, so now CD has kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. Everything oh, yeah. now is FLAC files, if you're fortunate, or highly compressed MP3s. I don't even know what kids are calling them now. I The latest download? I, I don't know what they're calling them.
0: Just Be- media, really.
1: Yeah, because they don't have a... A physical thing.
0: Well, I started playing guitar back in like 94, <clears throat> 95. And back then, I mean, I had, we bought
1: cassettes. Right, first. Right, cassettes. I had Let's and talk it, about Hiss for a moment. Hootie and the
0: Blowfish. And yeah. <laughs> uh I think Tom Petty, Wildflowers,
1: I had on cassette tape. Do you remember 8-track? I never got into that. My dad had an 8-track. Our first album was released on cassette and on 8-track as well as on vinyl. Wow. Boy, there was never a more um, interruptive moment than when you were listening to something on 8-track and it would change tracks in the middle of a song. And so the machinery actually would sort of click and pop and the rotors on the inside of the machine had to change direction. And so the song was completely interrupted while the machine went... Buzz, click, pop, and then it would start again and pick up in the middle of the song that you were in. That's why that format didn't work. Why would Why would it change tracks in the middle of a song? Because the length of the tape that had eight tracks on it, oh, okay, four sets of stereo tracks, and so it would reach the end of the track and it would go one direction, then it would go the other direction, it would go one direction, go the other direction, in order to hear... Each of the eight tracks successively. Wow! And oh, it was a horrible format. Who ever thought of that? It was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> <So bad. laughs> but. Plus,
0: they're like they're huge. I mean, they look like Nintendo game cartridges almost, yeah. or something.
1: Yeah. Well, so while I was sitting here espousing the great virtues of uh, analog recording, uh, I take no responsibility for eight track because that was awful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we we won't claim that one at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's go back to your 707 experience, and uh, like, what was songwriting like in that band? Songwriting? Yeah, like being a
1: drummer. Oh. Like, Did you have input on like lyrics, or how did that I go? I actually had songs on all our albums, which I was very fortunate because being a percussionist when I was young and learning to play timpani, xylophone, vibes, chimes, those kind of things, those are all based on a piano keyboard. And so Mm -hmm. I had to know a certain amount of music theory. So even though I have never considered myself a piano player, in as much as I would never go publicly and play piano outside of at church, uh, but I always could use a piano to get my ideas across and to map out chords and so I would write songs, and I had songs on all four of our albums. And then, yes, I wrote a lot of lyrics because the, the other guys would come up with song ideas. I went to a, an ASCAP songwriter symposium right after I arrived here in Nashville. It was one of those by-invitation things, and I was invited to it. And uh, Don Schlitz was one of the guys he wrote Love You Forever and Ever Amen. He wrote The Gambler for Kenny Rogers and stuff. Oh yeah. Uh, he said something really important at that symposium, which is going to take us back to the 707 songwriting thing. He said, the hardest thing to do and the most important thing to do in songwriting is learning to finish a song. He said, even if you finish it badly, get in the habit of learning to finish. Right. Don Schlitz had a lot of songwriting credits because of artists who already had reputations and record deals, who would come up with song ideas. They'd have a verse, or they'd have a chorus, or they'd have a guitar lick, they'd have an idea, but they didn't know what to do with it. So they would call somebody like Don, who would come and finish songs and he said if you're good at finishing songs you'll be surprised how many people want to co-write with you right because you can finish a song
0: <laughs> well, was he was he dubbed the uh the finisher the, in town he should have been, huh? the finisher dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> well
1: it would have worked with the gambler sure yeah sure you know. <laughs> so that was sort of my strength in 707 the guys would come up with ideas or they'd have guitar licks or they'd have Uh, But they really didn't know, you know, they'd have a song structure, but they didn't know what the song was about. And I was always really good at finishing songs. So I wrote a lot of lyrics. I came up with a lot of melodies. Our first album, Duke, the Piano Player, and I wrote, I think, seven songs on that album. And so that kind of gave me a level of songwriting credibility that to this day uh, has served me really well because I know how to start an idea, but I know how to finish an idea. What was the recording process for you guys? This is one of my favorite things to talk about. Great. That's why I have you here. (laughs) (laughs) On our first album, we were willing to be uh, experimental to a large degree, but we also were a very symphonic kind of band. I mean, we did have a piano in the band, and so we did get sort of Elton John-like, Billy Joel-like every once in a while, but we were also a rock and roll band. And a couple of the songs, two of the songs on the first album were actual full-blown ballads, but they were really symphonic ballads. Mm. And as a consequence, we got to hire a 17-piece string section to come in and play on those tracks And uh, David Carr, who did the arrangements for those songs, listened really carefully, not only to the piano, but he listened to what I played. He listened to the drum parts. And so many of the accentuated string lines and stuff corresponded exactly with what I had already played on the song. And as a consequence, when you listen back to it, you think, boy, that guy is really playing good with the strings, Turned out that the strings were playing really good with that guy. Yeah. But the wonder of recording back in the analog days for old guys like me is that if we heard something in our head and we wanted to record whatever it was we heard in our head, we had to find a way to make that sound. I used to call it playing with noise. Mm-hmm. To this day, I do. I tell my wife, I'll be in the end room playing with noise. And for instance, I talked one time to the guy who engineered. I'm not going to do the name-dropping thing again. But he was the fellow who engineered and, and I do believe ended up producing the uh, Bookends album. No. The Bridge Over Troubled Water album for Simon and Garfunkel. Okay. They were recording at the RCA building in New York. They had finished the album, and they were listening back to it. And as they were listening to The Boxer, after every time that Simon and Garfunkel sang, la da die," he said, Art was standing over my shoulder, and he was making this sound with his mouth. He was going... Because in his head, he heard la de da la da la-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, anybody who knows that record knows that that sound is, boy, it's so identifiable with that record. So they wanted that sound. But now they had to make that sound. And they tried a variety of different things with a variety of different kinds of reverbs. And they just never could capture that exact noise. What they ended up doing in the middle of the night was sending the drummer down to the basement of the building and opening up the elevator shaft and sending microphones down the elevator shaft to record the snare drum bouncing up the metal elevator shaft. And they lifted, you know, raised and lowered the microphones until they could get the timing just right so that it would settle into the track right. Mm -hmm. If you go back and listen to that record now, and I used to listen to it all the time, and every time I would hear that sound, I would think, what is that? And so that, when I met him, that was my first question. How did you do that? And when he told me that story, now every time I listen to the record, it sounds exactly like a snare drum in an elevator shaft,
0: Right. (laughs) because I know what it is.
1: And that kind of recording that kind of creative recording how am i going to get a backward guitar sound you know well i'm going to take the 2 inch and we're going to turn it backwards or are you just going to dub it off onto a quarter inch and then turn the quarter inch upside down how are you going to get that sound i hear this sound in my head how am i going to get that sound how am i going to make that that's the reason that people made echo chambers you know would make rooms specifically to create plate reverbs, was because they heard sounds in their head, and they said, now, how do I make that sound? And in this digital world that we live in, we think, oh, this needs a sound right here, and then we flip through our samples until we find the sample. One time, we were trying to get a, uh, a reverberation sound, but just a really short, tight reverberation on a guitar track. And what we ended up doing was taking a little Fender Champ amp and putting it against a heating unit because the heating unit was all aluminum Mm -hmm. and it had the little heating, I don't even know what you call it, heating element in it. Yeah. And it created the perfect reverb. So we actually tipped the amp against the... uh, the heating unit and then miked the heating unit and got the greatest guitar sound you've ever heard. Wow. But that's the kind of creativity that was required in analog recording. And what song
0: was that been on?
1: Oh, that was on a demo I did. Okay. Oh yeah. Um uh,
0: so we didn't make it on the album or something? No,
1: a group called Egghead. And Oh, okay. I, gotcha. I
0: was, yeah. You were the drummer on a demo and you know,
1: actually I was the mix engineer on okay, it. Okay, cool. But, yeah. Cool. But in any case, the, uh, that mandatory creativity that is part of analog recording doesn't exist as much today because, again, we just go looking through our samples until we find something that's good enough and just dump that into our track. Right. But I miss the days when we would say, now, how are we going to make this noise? And then you go around hitting things and dropping things and stretching things. And you take a guitar string and you stretch it over a shoebox and you pluck it or you you put a violin bow against it. Or you, you just do whatever you got to do to make a noise that nobody has ever made before. Right. And then you record that noise. And that becomes your record.
0: Yeah, I think there's uh, there's sample packs nowadays you can buy... That's the sound of like a burning piano or yeah. like all kinds of weird stuff.
1: There is a, a website that I like very much that um, it's called Piano Book. I'm, I go on there all the time. It's a place where people create samples and then share them with the community. And you can go to Piano Book right now and download for free. It's actually Spitfire Audio. Kind of, of started yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Spitfire is known for great orchestra libraries and stuff. Right. And and that's one of the places where I gotta say I'm happy about sampling because I can't afford to hire the BBC orchestra. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I can't take them into Abbey Road and record them. But I have those samples and I can use them on my recordings and so that's good sampling i'm i'm happy for that sample. well let's let's dive into
0: the world of sampling for you then cuz you got you got a mac computer with a universal audio interface and presonus studio 1 so for you like what's your like nowadays what's your recording process like versus, i mean obviously it's not analog but like what's your mindset when you sit down to make music
1: I have to have a reason to do it. So it all starts, for me, it starts with the song. I have to have a song. If I don't have a song, a finished song, a completed song, I don't allow myself to sit down and get lost in my sample libraries because I have a few pretty extensive sample libraries. And I can sit there all day, and I'm not denigrating people who make beats for a living, Right. I'm just saying I don't understand. Or instrumental it.
0: music. Yeah. That just didn't seem to like go anywhere. There are people like who sit down
1: and just choose the standard beats per minute and then lay out four on the floor with the bass drum and then start creating two measures that they loop over and over again. Mm-hmm. And for some reason people call that a song.
2: <laughs> and yeah.
1: to me that's that's not a song. Um so it always starts with the song. Is there a reason to record? Otherwise, I'm going to sit there and just play with my samples, which I do in order to understand how the various different sampling interfaces work. Right. And so that I understand what options I have.
0: You have to get past the how to do something in Absolutely. order to...
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you got to learn. It's always a learning process.
2: Yeah.
1: And, uh, and I tell myself on a regular basis every month, repeatedly, I tell myself, okay, now you're done. Stop buying samples. (laughs) No more sample libraries and no more plugins. You're done buying stuff. And then the latest greatest thing comes out, and it was just Black Friday, and there were deals all over the place, and I bought more sample libraries. You caved. I caved, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But it all starts with, is there a good reason? Because just like when you went into the studio, when we went into the record plant up in Sausalito, that's where we did our third and fourth album, we were paying a tremendous amount of money to be there. Oh, yeah. And uh, so we would get a budget from the label, and that money was ours to spend... On making our record. But when the money was gone, there's no more money. That's just, that's done. So every hour that we spent in the studio was spending our money and it was really expensive. We would never think to go in the studio until we had finished songs. Right. Till we had, we knew what we were going to play. We knew what our parts were. We knew who was going to sing it. We knew our melodies. We knew our harmonies. We went in knowing what it was we were going to record because it wasn't financially expedient to go into the studio and then start writing, not at those kind of rates. And so that philosophy has stayed with me all these years. I don't start the recording process until I know what I'm doing, until I hear it in my head, and until I know pretty much what my instrumentation's going to be, what the arrangement's going to be, and then I start recording. That's when I go looking for samples, because right. now I know what it is I'm trying to do, and I find samples that can do it. Well, I think that's
0: a great mindset, because really, I mean, it can happen if, to anybody, uh, any generation, but... It's so much easier now with computers. You don't really have to learn to play anything. As long as you can push a button and it makes a sound, it's like, "Oh, I just created music." It's like,
1: mm, "Well, there are people on you the You push a button, good job, you know. <laughs> there are people on the internet selling MIDI packs. Right. So, you buy a MIDI pack, you buy a sample, you put them together, and what? You've created music? But there are people out there that think that's what they've done.
0: Right. And it's almost you, it's like you stumble across yeah. a song versus actually creating a song. It's like you just happen to, uh, you know, uh, drag in a certain loop in a certain order that you liked. And now you magically have a song. It's like, okay, well, yeah, that's cool.
1: <laughs> it's the difference between math and inspiration. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can sit down and logic your way through a recording and end up with a beat and end up with various different sampled sounds on top of your beat. But that's not inspiration. Genuine inspiration is recognizing that you're about to hear, you're about to create, you're about to write, you're something that nobody's ever heard before, something that didn't exist 10 minutes ago. And suddenly there's this this song in front of you that didn't exist a minute ago. And to me, a really, really good song is a song that can make you feel something. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to make people, and I think that about all art, whether you're looking at paintings, whether you're listening to a symphony, it's meant to make you feel something whether you're feeling exaltation or whether you're feeling sad or whether it makes you cry. It's meant to evoke an emotion out of you. Right. Um, for instance, go into any hotel anywhere and you'll find mass-produced, mass-copied art on the wall of your hotel just to make it feel more homey. You right. should not have an emotional reaction to that <laughs> because it's right. mass-produced art. hmm but if you go into a museum and you're looking at a Rembrandt, I mean, you can sit down and... It's like a one-for-one, one, you know. You can sit down and stare at it for hours and look at the mastery that went into it. Um, and I picked Rembrandt because I've done that. I, I went to the Huntington Hartford out in California and sat in front of Blue Boy and Pinky and was just astounded by the art of it. It created an emotion in me that hotel art does not create. It's the same way that music needs to be,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: really inspiring music. My definition of music, this may not be a definition that anybody else shares, but my definition of music is, it's meant to evoke emotion. If it's punk rock, and it's meant to evoke anger, and then it makes you want to jump into a mosh pit, It's done its job. Right. By definition, then, that's a music that has done its job. Right. Um, Lyle Lovett singing She's Already Made Up Her Mind makes me feel sad every time. And I've heard that song hundreds of times, and every single time it brings up emotion in me. right? Well, that's music that's doing its job. But computers creating sequences against mathematical beats don't create emotion in me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm embarrassed if I bob my head to it because I realize that what I've just let the machine do is the machine is controlling me now (laughs) (laughs) because I'm responding to it. Yeah. So, yeah, I have to start with a musical idea. I start with... A song. Why does this song exist? What am I trying to evoke in it? Otherwise, don't do it.
0: Well, that's really cool. Um, that's what I was going to ask about your your sample libraries. Is like Because I know some of the string type stuff, even in Logic. I mean, it sounds okay.
1: It's plastic.
0: It's, yeah, but it doesn't have the emotion. Like when the bow hits the string and like you fade into a note or glissando into a note. I guess you have to pay more to get better stuff. So like the, the kind of sounds that you have, what, what does it do differently than like what a real player or how close to a real player does it really get? Or well, can you kind of fake it enough to.
1: Yeah. There's a couple different aspects you? of that. Yeah. You can get cheap libraries, but a cheap library will always sound like a cheap library. Right. And so if you bury it behind the guitars and you've also got a ham and B3 wailing away. And then on the last chorus, the, the cheap strings come in. If that's not the focus of your attention, you can get away with it. Uh-huh. It's fine. I mean, come on. People were, have been doing that all the way back to... Remember the strings on a Prophet 5? Oh, no, you wouldn't remember that. The early keyboards, the DX7s. I had a Prophet
0: 5 in the analog lab. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. Digital
1: emulation. I have a DX7. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, those weren't... They didn't sound anything like real strings. But, but they, they ga- weren't supposed to. Yeah, you but know. they gave you the impression of strings so that you yeah. could create pads and stuff. Mm-hmm. So you can get away with that in some productions. But if what you're trying to write is a symphonic piece... if what you're trying to write is a symphonic piece, you need symphonic string samples, and those are expensive because, like for Spitfire, and I do have some Spitfire libraries, um, you know, they actually do hire the BBC orchestra, and they do go into Abbey Road, and they do record them in every different articulation, and that's the big difference between a good library and a bad library. Not only are the samples really good and not, you know, horribly compressed, but you have all the different articulations and you can key switch the articulations. So, yeah. so you don't just have long, sustained notes. You actually have pizzicato if you need it. You actually have uh, dynamics where you can feel the difference between, like you said earlier, Forte and Pianissimo. Right. Um, So, yeah, you got to pay more to get that. It just depends on what you're trying to do. The reason I bought the BBC Orchestra was because I was writing orchestrated music and I wanted it to sound right. So I paid the money. I waited until it was on sale, but I paid the money. Of course you do. This is is the best time to do it. (laughs) But I have two libraries now. I have one from IK Multimedia. They've got, um, you probably have to cut that. Uh, Trying to think of the name. It doesn't matter. You can leave it at I've got one from IK Multimedia. So between that and Spitfire, sometimes I blend them. Mm-hmm. And then also when you record an orchestra sample, you have to really be smart with your mod wheel. You have to be able to create the dynamic range that they have built into them, but they'll sit at one volume the whole time if you don't tell them what to do.
0: Right. So and you use the mod wheel to actually adjust the, the volume. A or the lot. velocity.
1: Yeah, and in the Spitfire, not to get too detailed here or get lost in the weeds, but in the Spitfire libraries, it's not just volume; it's volume and sort of the energy with which they're playing. Yeah, the attack. It. Yeah, well, not just the attack, but even the sustains, and everything. But yeah, right. so you're you're using two modifications. And so you almost have to become a gymnast with your left hand because sometimes you're adjusting both of them at the same time but having them each do different things. Wow. And that sounds more and more like an actual violinist. So I'm a drummer. I grew up a drummer. I don't play drums much anymore, but I have several sample libraries of drums. The difference between my sample libraries and, let's say, your sample library, or, or or, I won't put you in that corner, Sure. let's just say a keyboardist who right. finally gets a sample library of drums, he doesn't know, because he's not a drummer, how to program those drums to sound like a drummer. Right. And so oftentimes he'll program things that would be impossible for a drummer to play unless the drummer suddenly grew a third hand. <laughs> and so I program my drum samples like a drummer. Same thing, I grew up playing in orchestras and utilizing string sections, so I know how violinists play. And so when I do my string samples, I try as best I can to emulate the way that they would play. Another example would be if you're playing a flute sample or a clarinet sample, any horn that requires breath, you have to know where that horn player would breathe. You can't just play constant, sustained notes. Right. Humans don't do that. Yeah. And it sounds unnatural if you do that, even if the sample sounds really good. And you have to know that the amateur of like a French horn is going to create a forzando sound when he first blows, even if he calms it down later. It's the really, really skilled guys who can start at pianissimo with a French horn. So the more you know the human characteristics of the players of each of those instruments, the more you can emulate the way a real human actually would play that. And that's what creates really authentic sounding orchestras.
0: Right. That you don't have to bury in a mix just to make it passable. No, you can
1: stick it way out front. (laughs) Right. And people will go... Did you hire the BBC? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I actually have a song that uh, you can experiment with, and this test your uh, your production skills. It's a very simple, like, acoustic guitar. It's actually, I play it on Classical, uh, like a piece I wrote, like, years ago. But I hear just a very simple violin or, like, maybe a little quartet sound on it Um, but yeah, let's, let's see what you can do, Jim. (laughs) I'd be happy to do it. That's fun.
2: outside of Abilene I saw a farmhouse burning down I heard a mother from Abilene cry as she watched her whole life burning to the ground It's strange how cruel the life can be
1: What I've been getting back to that I really enjoy is I've been mixing other people's stuff. Mm -hmm. And I used to do quite a bit of that at Skip Sailor Sound, which I think still exists out in Los Angeles. In these COVID days, I don't know if any studios still exist out in Los Angeles. If they do, nobody can leave their house to go to them. Right. But uh, I did a lot of mixing out at Skip Sailor and then, you know, just kind of got tired of that and moved on to other things. And so recently I've been remixing other people's stuff, even if they don't want my mix. I just ask people to send me their stems just so that I can play with them. And Cambridge Music has a website where you can download other people's stems and just practice mixing. Oh, yeah. Which is another thing that's just fun to do. I do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's great, great practice. It's great for ear development. But unfortunately, what I find myself doing is opening more tracks and adding stuff to the mixes of <laughs> other people. But, yeah, I really enjoy doing that. So, yeah, send me your tracks. That'll be fun. Whether you use them or not, whether you like what I've done or not, oh, yeah. I'll have a good time doing it.
0: You know, with you saying, like, you have to have a finished song, what's cool is you technically have other people's finished songs. Mm-hmm. And now you can play around with your sample libraries all you want. Yeah, because you like you don't have to think about
1: the song. Decisions are made.
0: Yeah, it's already yeah. there. You just kind of sprinkle in some little gem all over whatever, and yeah. and it. Uh, yeah, you can just practice and have fun with that. That's, I think it's a good idea of doing that. I should add like, guitar solos or something. <laughs>
1: over everything.
0: And then send it All to the, the band. Time. Yeah. It was like, you know, you probably weren't expecting this,
1: but I kind of added some stuff to your song. I think I've improved your song. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I know you probably weren't expecting a guitar solo over the lead vocal, but look, I've done it. And... Like a, a stack 10 harmonies on the chorus
0: exactly. or something.
1: Or... <laughs> we have the technology. We really do. <laughs> And auto-tune, thankfully. Oh, auto-tune. Don't get me into auto-tune. Auto-tune. How about this? Here's an idea. Now, stop me when this is too obvious. How about hiring a singer that can sing? There's an idea. Right. Or you could just auto-tune everything. I hate the sound of (laughs) auto-tune. Well, if you do it right, you don't really hear it. But you do hear them singing in pitch, so that's good. <laughs> now, having said it, uh, I should point out: I mean that sound of auto tune that is so common in hip hop and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. That just where there's no. They make
0: their they, they make the attack so fast, right? And there's no the glissando. Note, yeah, the note there's, doesn't have yeah. any choice to but uh, like be glitchy,
1: horribly and... unnatural. Right. Yeah. But I do have tuning software oh yeah in my arsenal because every once in a while there's a note or two that just could use fixing
0: right well i learned you know this this lesson a long time ago uh from a guy named kevin ward he's a Mm -hmm. big time uh dove award mix engineer and producer here in nashville who recently moved out to California. And now after a few years out there, he is moving back and he made that official. So I can say that officially on the podcast. (laughs) Yes, Kevin, you're coming back home, thankfully. Um, but he said about auto tune, it was like people pay you to make them sound good, whether they can sing or not. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's not a matter of, you know, hiring the best singer for the project is making the singer that you have sound good enough
1: (laughs) because he's paying you.
0: Yeah. Well that, and they, maybe it's a family of singers that aren't quite all together and they want to sound their best. And that product or that song is going to be there for like the rest of their life. And they don't want to have to keep listening to it. Man, I should have sang that better or man, I should have done whatever. It's like, you just make it sound. This is, this is my, this is the way I say it. I make it sound the way they intended to sing it or yeah. they intended to play it because, you know, they intended to sing it right, but they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I have to think of it that way. Yeah, Otherwise, I guess so. But you know.
1: part of what I miss from the analog days is the humanness oh, that yeah. comes from a guitar that's slightly out of tune right? or that comes from somebody who's got so much emotion. I mean, that was the way that we used to determine a good vocal take was—I I probably shouldn't say this. I'm going to drop a name now. Um, George Tutko, who passed away just a couple of years ago, was the engineer on our second and fourth album. One of the albums that he did was John Mellencamp. Uh, he did—he engineered Jack and Diane— uh, cool. American Fool, I think was the name yeah. of the album. Uh-huh. Uh, and he did Blondes Have More Fun with Rod Stewart. And Rod was always very adamant about don't talk to me about pitch because he was there to deliver the performance. Right. And if you can capture the performance on tape, then if things are a little pitchy around the edges, oh well. It's still going to have its desired result, which is you're going to feel the emotion. Right. And sometimes I think we so overtune everything now, everything is so perfect that we get used to hearing everything in tune and it becomes sterile. We've lost the human component of it. Right. Um, kind of like, like quantizing drums or. Very much so. Whatever. <laughs> very much so, which is why. So many DAWs these days, along with their quantiza- along with their quantization. Okay, that's a harder word to say than I thought it was going to be. You, you nailed it. <laughs> along with being able to quantize, they also have a little slider for human feel, mm-hmm. ad humanist, and all they're doing is mathematically randomizing the quantization, right. <laughs> as if that's more human. Uh, I just really find it funny that they're trying to make the machines more human, as opposed to, once again, stop me when this is too obvious, how about get a human who can actually do that thing that you'd like to record, which right. seems like the better way. But I am a big fan of Melodon. Yeah. I like being able to touch notes here and there. Well, it's
0: great with uh, creating harmonies yeah. for yourself. So, you can sing yeah. a line and then just make different instances of the same plugin and yeah. just keep stacking thirds or fifths or and I've done flat it.
1: sevens or whatever you want, you know? But the other thing I like about Melodyne is like a couple weeks ago, I had a cellist in. Now I could have done it with one of my cello samples. I've got some really good cello samples, mm-hmm. but I had a cellist come in and record. And when she left, as I listened to it, there were just a few notes, you know, cause cello, it's Unless you're a uh, really, really expert at cello, it's really easy to hit the very top or the very bottom of a note, right. just like with singing. Oh, yeah. And so I was able to go in and fix those things with Melodyne. And I was really grateful that that existed. And Melodyne comes with Studio One. It does, but I own the full. You own the full thing, okay? The cool. full studio. I forget what they call it. I it's, think it's the studio version. Yeah, it's know?
0: the polyphonic version. Right. bro. You can yep. take multiple, a full piano chord, multiple tracks, and change and, whatever note within yep. there you want. It's just crazy. Yep.
1: <laughs> which means you can actually change the chords. Yeah,
0: which is great. I, think I it's
1: am cool. a fan of some technology. I, see, oh well, I figured you were. <laughs> <laughs> and especially these days, because the vast majority of music that I make, I'm doing it by myself. Right. And without the technology that exists, I couldn't because somebody has to be on the other side of the glass to push record. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And that's,
0: you know, with all the technology we do have, I mean, I think to some sense, you know, if you're comparing it to analog days versus digital, like, yeah, there's really no comparison. But how great is it that, that you can have a computer and an interface and a microphone you can just sit in your bedroom, even as a teenager or as any age, really, and just be creative. You know, even though you are basically hitting a button and a sound is being produced, it's like it's still fun to do stuff like that. The latest Billy Eilish record. I was going to mention that.
1: Yeah. See, I'm not totally out
0: of touch. Oh, you you know all the cool things. Oh man, now. don't I? What's neat about that though is uh, her brother. You know, they did sample like strike, you know, matching, uh, striking a match and uh, maybe, I think, like a, a road
1: sound. He had a bass speaker that he set on a shelf. Yeah, all kinds to of To create stuff. the distortion from the shelf. I mean, I like that kind of recording. Yeah, so it's being creative with the
0: tools that you have yep. to yep. take it to another level.
1: And in that whole record, they didn't use any kind of vocal tuning software on anything she did right she would retake and retake and retake until it sounded right i like that kind of recording cuz that harkens back to what i grew up with
0: right so basically you're at that point you're using the computer as the tape right and yeah you have some some surgical abilities to do whatever you want with yeah. the audio but uh but yeah just having the mindset of yeah, I could tune it, or yeah, I could stretch it, or do whatever, but let's just sing it again. Yeah, because why not? Because I'm here and and <laughs> I can and you can. Yeah, and you if have you have all can, the time in the world, then good for you. Yeah, because when you're producing an album in your bedroom, you don't have to pay studio time. Exactly. Other than you're paying yourself back the time it takes to learn the process.
1: Oh yeah.
0: You know, and at I mean, that that's point, you got the Dave
1: Grohl philosophy. Right. I'll just do it at my house. And then he won a Grammy for Best Engineered Album. So, I know, right. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: there you go, name-dropping again.
1: Oh, you know there that. I go. <laughs> who's going to pick up these names I'm dropping? <laughs> um, the thing that I do like, though, about analog recording in a studio versus recording in my studio by myself, in my bedroom by myself, is that analog recording in a studio was very much a team sport right and you had to have a group of people that had the same goal in mind. Mm-hmm. They're kind of hearing the same thing or they're complementing each other's version of what they're hearing and adding their own stuff the the great records, the records that I really like are the result of teamwork right. You know? as oh, yeah. opposed to just a guy in his bedroom.
0: Well, that's a whole different aspect when you when yeah. you bring it up to that level of, like, yeah, it's way more fun having a band that you can get in the same room. That's why I had this room as, like, the band, the practice room, and that was the right. control the room, yeah. you know, the booth over there, because obviously this is bigger. I could fit a drum set in here with a bass player and a guitar player and a singer and me over here, and we could all collectively produce sound that we thought was, you know, sounded pretty fun. Well, and other
1: musicians, and let me go on record as saying, I love musicians, Mm -hmm. actual musicians. I mean, people who can play their instrument, not people who could play guitar hero so they think they could play guitar. Right. I mean, people who can play, that was always the standard that I grew up with. The only reason I got to play with the symphony I played with is because I could play. The only reason I played in jazz clubs in Detroit was because I could play. And uh, so to this day, I love musicians that can actually play. And I love it when a musician comes in and plays on my song because I've already got the song. Right. But he's going to come in and think of something, play something that I would never have come up with. Mm -hmm. And I love that stuff, that creative process. That's what gets me excited.
0: There was a recent... Uh, project I just finished for uh, Lance Allen who he's a local guy he does instrumental music but he found I think he's it's a saxophone player that is related to the actual saxophone player in the Dave Matthews band um, don't remember his name but when he uh, he recorded his track at his own place because that's you know what you do just send somebody in a stereo file, then they play over, and then they send you the track and Dropbox right. or whatever. But when I when I pulled his track into the session and just soloed it and listened to it, it was like so great. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. oh, this guy knows. Oh yeah, he knows how to play. You right. know, and that's that's the and the, it lifts
1: the whole track, doesn't it? Yeah, it just, it just makes everything better.
0: It almost mixed itself. It's yeah. like I could have, I could have totally screwed it up and it still would have sounded great a great musical
1: part (laughs) you can push it in the background shove it over to the left side bury it in reverb and it's still great Mm -hmm. or you can put it front and center on top of everything and it's still great because it's just a good part it just sounds good it's played well Mm -hmm. that's the magic of recording that's the stuff you look for
0: yeah so that's other than just you know, creating music here and, you know, cause I long have drones and pianos and all the guitar stuff, I could sit here and make a song, all, you know, all I want. Same with you. But I think the goal always, if I can is find people that can, if I can't play it myself, then I'll find people that can do it better.
1: People who can or, execute. Yeah.
0: Execute it. Mm. And uh, what was the term you used earlier? Uh, Get the gig. What the gig? Cut the gig. Cut the gig. You know who can cut the gig.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, and whoever that is, great. You know, I don't, I don't care
1: yeah.
0: who it is. Just get the result that it, the song needs, and then yeah. you're happy with it. You know. Exactly. Um, play to the song. Yeah, play to the song. And here lately, I've really had a desire to find like high school age students to come into the studio and we just finished a song uh me and my friend Jeremy released it on Spotify I think last Friday this past Friday the music minister at church has a I mean their whole musically like musical family but her uh his daughter came in and she's she's played in the Nashville Youth Symphony or whatever they call it and uh she just she slayed it sounded yeah. so good And she played in tune and played with feeling and, you know, read the notes on the page and did exactly what was needed Mm -hmm. of her. And I want to find more people like that, that, you know, who are young, but don't quite have the recording experience, but we can give them that, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's all about experience. It's just the more experience you have, the more confident you're going to be the next time you go into a studio. Absolutely. Because you learn how to wear the headphones. You learn how to approach the mic and um because that's a whole nother aspect of music that a lot of people don't really know about they could read reviews on gear all day but until they have the gear in front of them they have to learn how to like what is this mic in front of me and how do i talk into it and sing into it and get closer to the process you know when you get closer to a mic you have proximity effect when you pull back it sounds different you know, that all goes into the overall sound and the emotion of the track, which is really cool. So, um, well, Jim, anything else that is just really heavy on your heart that you want to talk about? Or Yeah,
1: only one. <laughs> just one thing that I've been wanting to say um, since we started talking here, uh, which is, uh, Nathan, you're a cool guy. So there you go. Well thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why they call you Doc
0: McFarland. Doctor yeah. McFarland. Well I do get surgical with audio. Well, there you go. And I heal people sweet rock and roll. So... Exactly.
1: <laughs> the best medicine there is.
0: There have there have been a few healings over the years and you know, when someone needs me to surgically do stuff with audio for their album then They call the doctor, you know.
1: There you are. The
0: doctor is in. But do you do house calls? I do make house calls. Well,
1: there you are. I know that because you've come to my house. Right. (laughs) Guitar in hand. Nathan, I need a doctor fast.
0: Come play guitar. I need somebody
1: to come heal my truck.
0: I'll be over there stacked.
1: (laughs) Ooh, even the lingo. I
0: know. Well, you have to have the lingo. It's all about the branding, you know, marketing. (laughs) Well, that's
1: prescribe a good dose of rock and roll.
0: right. well, that's that's a good way to end this uh, discussion here. So thanks, Jim, for being on the podcast. And who knows we may have you back later talking about other aspirations of musical creativity.
1: <laughs> I'll wait for that phone call. <laughs>
0: right. Well, you might have, you might not have to wait too long. Um, well, thanks guys for listening today. If you want to check out Jim McClarty, uh, we have not talked about his photography yet, but maybe that might be another podcast. We can have you back on and talk about just your photography stuff. But he does take great photos. Has a vast knowledge of music, so check out his 707 band wherever music is heard.
1: Heard, we're <laughs> on all the all the services. You'll all the services. Seven.
0: Uh, yep. you might even search on YouTube and see his. Oh, we're on YouTube. His too. magical face yeah. from. 40 years ago. <laughs>
1: go have a lot of listens because you know as you're listening that I'm not getting paid for any of it. So, <laughs> right. So go have.
0: Right. Enjoy while you can. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review. Let me know what you thought of today's episode.
1: And meanwhile, I'm Dr. McFarland. Join us next time when the doctor is in.